So I have a word that God has been, I wasn't planning on teaching tonight until just a few days ago. Pastor Randy asked me because he had something else planned. But um, but the Lord had already been doing a work in me about something. And I've I've learned that there's two different messages that a preacher can preach or a teacher can teach. And that is a message that he is currently teaching you or a message that if you preach it, he'll start teaching it to you. <laughs> and you always got to make sure you pick the first one so you don't get yourself you know, into something that you weren't ready for. Does that make sense? So some people, I mean, I, I guess there's a third category where you can just preach lessons that you learned 20 years ago or whatever, but that's not the fresh bread. So I don't want to just recycle <laughs> everything that God taught me before. I want something now. I want, I want to be able to teach something that God is actually teaching me, that I have to actually go through, because that's where the authority comes from, right? But I'm just letting you know that this is one of those messages that I'm on the front end of getting the authority. So hopefully I'll get a little bit more tonight, but just bear with me. Um, but first, I wanted to give a prophetic word, and I wanted to give it to Gloria. How you doing, Gloria? Um, while we were worshiping, I just, I actually don't even think you had arrived yet, and I started thinking about you, um, which happens all the time. I think about you all the time, you know. <laughs> And, um, and sorry, Charles, I'm just joking. Um, I, I saw a vision of you. You were on your knees and you were squeezing Jesus's robe. And I heard the Lord say, I love how tight of a grip she has on me. And I really, and I know it's a prophetic word because I always start to get choked up for no reason. Um, and, <laughs> and I really feel like the Lord just wanted to encourage you and let you know, like, the grip that you have on him is so tight, and it's so close, and it's so intimate, that there's nothing that's ever going to rip you out of his hands. I mean, and I just feel like it's something that in the next season, God really wants you to keep at the forefront of your mind that in a season of waiting, you know, waiting for all of the things to happen that God has always promised you, that God says that's not, I mean, that'll come, but that's not what he wants you to focus on. He just wants you to focus on being at his feet and just continuing to cling to him intimately. And he sees it and he knows it and he loves it. So, you're welcome. All right. Is that a good word, everyone? All right. Give your love to Gloria. Woo! Okay. I'm going to need to grab this for a second. So a few, maybe like a week ago, I had, um, I had a dream. And I had someone in my dream, a friend that I knew from the past. And... Um, and it was a relationship that, you know, wasn't necessarily godly. <laughs> and this person kept coming up in my mind just over the years. And I haven't known this person for, I mean, I haven't 
seen this person in over a decade, you know? But it, but I saw this person in a dream, and I woke up, and I, I could feel the emotions that come that came from the relationship that I had or the disappointments and all this kind of stuff. And this happens with me. I've noticed I'll have like seasons of my life where my mind will constantly like go back to them, like I'm tied to them still somehow. And, or like I'll hear a song from my past or whatever and like this emotion will come up from just thinking about it. And, you know, I've learned to go to God and bring him those memories. Or if there's relationships or soul ties, everybody know what a soul tie is? Just when you had like a deep, intimate connection with someone and, you know, your souls, well, the Bible talks about your souls being come, becoming one. That's why it's supposed to only happen in mar- marriage. But it happens with anyone, whether you've been intimate with them or not. If your soul has been intimate with their soul, then you can create an unhealthy soul tie. Um, And you're unequally yoked is another way of putting it. But with this, um, with things from the past, I've, I've always brought them to the Lord. I've always asked, you know, the Lord to break these things. But some of them kept, still kept coming up. And I'm like, Lord, why, you know, why am I still going through this? How many of you ever had that where you're like, Lord, well, I thought we dealt with this. Anybody? I thought we dealt with this, and you're like, okay, I guess we're dealing with it again. And But this time the Lord really like specifically taught me something that I think is really beneficial to the body of Christ, and I've never heard anybody say it like this. So you can all applaud me for being the first to get it. I'm just joking. Um, I... I well, let me just start. So I had this dream, and when I woke up, I saw the numbers 811. I mean, it was like right in front of my face. I, could, I didn't physically see it, but I couldn't get this vision that had been like burned into my mind. And it was 811, 811. And, you know, of course, there's probably like 50 Bible scriptures that are like 811. And so I was like, Lord, I can't just start, you know, going through them and trying to guess which one you're talking about. And so he said, go to Hosea. So I went to Hosea, and chapter 8, verse 11, it says, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Well, I didn't have any clue what that meant. (laughs) So I meditated on it some, but let me read it to you again. It's really powerful once you finally get it. Hosea 8.11, because Ephraim, you have multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. In other words, you created these altars so that you could get, you know, forgiveness for your sins. But the very altars themselves have become a place that has produced sin inside of you. You know, one one way of putting that would be like a religious spirit. Like, I come to church, and I do all of these things so I can feel good about myself, but it's really not connected with God. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But God started teaching me, 
and we don't have enough time to go through all of the things that God's been teaching me. And now every time, you know when you, like God teaches you something and then every time you open your Bible, you see that in every single scripture? That's how it's been. So I'll try not to read the whole Bible to you tonight. Um, but if I did, I'm sure you'd be fine with that, right? Because you guys love the word so much. Idols, altars, sacrifices, and sacred spaces. This is what God has been talking to me about. So let me give you some definitions on what each of these are, because I think sometimes the church has taught us, you know, what are idols in your life? An idol is anything that you raise above the knowledge of God, right? Now, in the Old Testament, you had actual physical idols. I'm sure in, you know, in other countries, there are physical idols. They believe in deities that are above them, and they put up a statue or whatever that is a physical representation of what that looks like. And if you talk to people who have seen in the spirit, they usually look exactly like that. I mean, these spirits end up mimicking whatever it is. Well, I guess they, they give revelation of what they are like, and then humans build these idols for them. You get what I'm saying? Um, but... Idols usually aren't necessarily what we think they are. So an idol is an image or representation of a god used as an object of worship, right? It is, or I guess a better thing would be to say it is an object that you worship to. Um, And then an altar is a table or a flat-topped block used as the focus of a religious ritual especially for making sacrifices or offerings to a deity. So it is for the focus of religious ritual, especially for making sacrifices or offerings to a deity. And then a sacrifice is an act of slaughtering an animal or person or surrendering a possession as an offering to God or to a divine or supernatural figure. And then a sacred space is a greatly respected space of reverence that is dedicated to connecting with the God that you're worshiping, right? So I drew it out for you. Because it's a, this is a picture that we actually see in the garden. So let me point it out. This little cloud up here, this is going to be God, okay? I didn't know what he looked like, so that's what I drew him as. Um, I'll know one day. But you then have an idol that is the physical representation of what the God is, right? You have an altar. That's what you put your sacrifices on. And then the space that you do this in is sacred. It becomes sacred to you, right? You know, we come in here and that's what we do. We have Jesus. We come and worship on the altar. It took me the longest time. It was like far into adulthood that I realized that an altar wasn't just the stairs at the front of a church. (laughs) You know, like that's just go down to the altar, come down to the altar, altar, altar. And when you hear that over and over when you're a little kid, you're just like, I guess they just call that place the altar. And then it's, you know, you're 32 years old and you're a pastor and you're like, oh, oh, it's an altar. 
oh, I get it now. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me as an adult. Um, that's what happens when you grow up in church. There's just so many little things you do, you never even realize it. But your entire, your soul was created to worship. How many of you have ever heard that? You know, you were created to worship God. Yes, that's true. But what happens if you don't worship God? Your soul will automatically worship something else. You have no control over it. So even people who are atheists wandering out, you know, not having any kind of idea or belief in the supernatural or the spirit realm, their soul was created for it, and it was created to worship, so it will automatically find something to worship. It'll automatically build an idol, it'll build an altar, and it'll find things in its life, his or her life, to sacrifice to the idol that it's created. So let's take a look at Genesis, starting at chapter 1. Um, if you have your Bibles, please. I, I got a lot, so it'll be helpful for you to read along. Genesis 1, verse 26, and we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 17. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, in the garden, what is the idol? Anybody? The humans are the idol, okay? Now, I'm going to have to get you guys to think differently about the word idol because in church, every single time we've ever heard the word idol, it's always been in connotation of bad. You know, you have idols in your life. You have all these idols. An idol is just a representation, a physical representation of the God that you're worshiping. So in the garden, before there was ever sin, there were idols. They were humans. God created us in the garden to be the image of God that, the, that all of creation would look at and say, that is what God is like. Y'all following me? So you are an idol, okay? Some, my wife said, use the word image. People will understand it better. But... I have to use the word idol so, you, so I can get this into your minds, okay? And into your spirits. Okay, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. So now we have a sacred space that is created. This is the garden. This is the place of communion with God, right? 
By the seventh day, God had finished his work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all work of creating that he had done. Adam and Eve, um, oh, I'm sorry, created that he had done. This is the account of, hev- of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens. Now the shrub had not yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he had put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice he doesn't say that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is evil. He just says it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? That'll be important here in a minute. Um... Okay, uh, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic, resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, I believe is how you say it. It winds through the entire land of Cush. And there's a third river and a fourth river. We'll skip that. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden, right? He took the man, the idol of himself, and placed him in the garden. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So when Adam fell... It created an infinite amount of altars of worship. So let me explain this. An altar is the place that you sacrifice on, right? So in the garden, their altar was just their work. God gave them commandments. He said, be fruitful and multiply. He said, subdue the earth. And he said, you can have all of this. It's all yours to have. And every single thing you do will be you sacrificing yourself on an altar for the worship of the Lord. Everything. They didn't have church. They didn't have, you know, all of these things we do as Christians. They just had them, their lives, and resisting the one thing that God said to resist, not trying to be in charge, you know, not deciding for themselves what is good or evil. They just chose life, and they worked. And it all was worship to God. And we were created to be an idol. Like there wasn't, idolatry is when you, you worship an idol that is not God, right? So idols in and of themselves are not inherently evil. It's just the act of worshiping it that becomes evil. You get what I'm saying? I mean, you can build a sculpture of Gabriel 
and you can recognize that he's an angel, he's a deity, you know, he has superpowers, he flies around, he kills demons, whatever. And there's nothing wrong with having that there as long as you're not, you know, claiming that it is above God, right? But in the garden, what did the enemy want to do? He came in and he wanted you, he wanted Adam and Eve, he wants us to want to be God. So essentially, we become our own idols, right? But here's the trick. And this is something that just came to me today and it kind of blew my mind. Um, In fact, I think I just wrote it down, so let me read it. So when Adam fell, it created an infinite amount of altars of worship and the spiritual death made it impossible to retreat back to the original holy place because holiness is perfection and since generational blessing is a law of the spirit, generational curses become anti-law. The result is not following the law of the kingdom. So because they fell... They couldn't be in this sacred space because it can only be sacred and holy if it's perfect worship to God, right? So immediately they're separated from that space. Well, we now have Jesus in us. We've been cleansed by the blood and we immediately become that perfect image of God again, whether you like it or not, whether you act like it or not. (laughs) You become that because Jesus has washed you clean. And that's it, and that's permanent. But because we sinned, we became separated from that holy space, right? And we ended up, they ended up creating a generational curse for every single person that would live after them. So everybody just say, thanks, Adam and Eve. Um, All right. So the result... The curse was the result of not following the law of the kingdom of God. That law was simply to do those few things that God said and not eat from the tree. We all know this. So in a sense, Satan taught Adam and Eve how to elevate themselves to a place of godlike status. And when they became when and we then became an option of worship. No longer were we idols of ourselves, we became idols of Satan because Satan was the God that, let let me see how I'm saying it. Satan was the God that made us like him. He wanted to be like God so he could make us images of himself by making us want to be like God. So God, (laughs) sorry if that was confusing, I don't read very well. Um, So We were created in God's image. God has free will, right? That's why we have free will, because we were created in his image. And so he has free will to love you, and then he he wanted to create something that was a perfect representation of him, so he had to create something that also had free will that would choose to love him, right? Satan wanted to be like God, okay? And he convinced us He convinced Adam and Eve that if you eat from this, you'll gain wisdom and you'll know what is right from wrong, which is, was God's job. And this is the place that God is trying to get us back to through his sanctification is that you would no longer live by law, 
or by whatever you decide is right and wrong, which God said that we no longer live by the law, you know, according to the Old Testament. So that's no longer what we need to live by, but so many people still try to go back to it and keep living by it over and over. And God is saying, I just want you to live by what it is that I tell you to do. If he can, in his wisdom, he can tell you to do something one day and it can be right. And then if you do the, the next day, it could be wrong because he wasn't telling you to do it. But because of this curse that inherently is now in us, even though Jesus has set you free, you still have to learn to overcome this aspect of you until you go into glory, then that curse, that aspect of you that drives you to do it will no longer be there and you won't have to worry about it anymore. I guess, I think. (laughs) We'll see. Um, But Satan wanted to be like God and he thought, you know what? If I can get them to want to be like God, then they'll be like me. And then they'll become an idol of me. And they'll think that they're, and then this is what happens. We think we're worshiping ourselves. Or we think, you know, like a preacher will say, you know, is there an idol in your life? Anything that you, you care about more than God is an idol in your life. Well, it's not the idol. It's the altar. What's, you are the idol. <laughs> you are trying to please yourself. And you're trying to worship yourself. But even within that is a trick. Because you end up being an idol of Satan. And ultimately, just like the Bible talks about, you're children of wrath. You're just children of Satan. Not you guys. I know you guys are all saved, but you get what I'm saying. And Jesus is wanting to teach us how to sanctify all of the altars that we built in our lives. Okay? So I'll get to that in a second. Let's move on. Genesis 3. Is this making sense? Is there anything I need to clarify? Something like totally crazy that I said that nobody understands? No? Okay, I'll trust you. I guess I'm doing pretty good. Now the serpent, this is Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom... So everybody say, pleasing to the eye and desirable. She took some and ate it. So these are, this is what your soul craves for. It, what, what the, the language that's being used there is language that you would use for your soul. Um, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable, she ate some of it. She also gave some to her husband, so he's, you know, it wasn't just her fault, who was with her, and he ate it. Husbands, don't be passive (laughs) about sin, okay? Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 4. And this is the story of Cain and Abel. So literally the next passage, the next story in the Bible, is just revisiting this same exact thing. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. The name Cain means acquired. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave, how would you like to be named after the event of your birth? (laughs) I don't know, that just seems so weird to me. But God is so clever in the way that he tells stories through life. See, some, I've heard people... Make, have debates about you know whether a lot of this stuff is literal or whether it's just metaphorical. Um, but the truth is God is so creative in his wisdom that he likes to use the physical realm to speak of the spiritual realm, right? So we were talking about this in our inner healing training the other day because Lori, um, our trainer, our teacher, um, she was talking about how different diseases can manifest based off of whatever the brokenness that is going on in the soul. So we were talking about specifically like digestive issues that she's learned that when people are having chronic, constant digestive systems, that it's rooted in a spirit of religion. And when she said it, it made perfect sense because the spirit of religion likes to clog things up. It likes to clog up the flow of the spirit, right? And then your body ends up manifesting the same thing. Now, obviously, you can eat things. There's other, you know, you can eat something that's not good for you. There's other factors to it. But at the basic level, if it's something that you've been constantly dealing with forever, that could be the issue. And it clicked in my mind, and I realized, because I always had, like, trouble, like, justifying this kind of teaching where... You know, every single ailment is some kind of spiritual issue. It just never really made sense to me why that would be. But when she explained it this way, it made perfect sense. And I realized even the way God created your body, like why do we have organs that do specific things? He could have just made us, you know, he could have made us any way he possibly wanted. We could have been clams, you know. But God wanted to tell a story out of every single aspect of his creation. So even your organs testify of something that takes place in the spirit. Your lungs, you breathe the breath of God through your lungs. We see that in the garden. That's what brought him to life. Which, by the way, is Abel's name. So Cain is acquired, and Abel's name is Hevel, which means vapor or breath. So with the first two kids born in the entire universe, their names represent the eternal battle that's going to take place, or at least for the next 2,000 years, this is what humans are going to go through. There's going to be one set of people that pursue the law, and they just want, like, You know, Cain, he had to work the ground. Well, the ground had been cursed, right? So this is a symbol of works-based living for God. 
you're just constantly working the ground, though it's cursed, you know, and in other words, I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to become spiritual by my own actions. It's never going to work. You're never going to produce fruit because the ground is just a representation of God's heart. God cursed the ground because he wanted them to understand your heart is now cursed and this is what's going to happen to you. So the physical realm and the way God told the story is just a direct replica of what's going on in the spirit. Y'all following me? One person. Awesome. So later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Breath, vapor. What does that represent? That represents living by the spirit, living by the breath of God, not living by works and the law and trying to acquire something from God, Abel, acquire, but by living by the breath of God. So later she gave birth to him. Now Abel kept flocks, so now we have a shepherd, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering fat portions, which speaks of abundance and overflow. You know, I don't know. Maybe that made sense. Never mind. (laughs) It makes sense in my mind. Um, And Abel brought the fat portions from some of the firstborn flocks. So we already see through his actions a prophecy taking place about what God would do with Jesus, right? Jesus would be the good shepherd. Jesus would be the lamb of God. Jesus would be the firstborn that dies for this, for, as an offering for the sins of the world. Um, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain... And his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Remember the first scripture that I read? Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. This is the same exact concept. Now, I've always questioned this. God, like, why did you get on to Abel so much? Like, it doesn't say that he did anything wrong. I've heard people say, well, you know, his offering wasn't good. God wanted, you know, a firstborn lamb and he didn't want crops. That's, that's not the point of this story. We know that Cain's heart was not right because of the way he responded to God. He got angry because he didn't get God's favor. So why was he making the sacrifice in the first place? To get God's favor. (laughs) So who was the Who was the article of worship in the scenario? Himself. But God obviously looked at Abel's offer and he saw that it was good. He saw his heart is pure. His worship is pure. And here's the point, a 
major point I want to make. Your altars in your life are neither good nor bad. They are just whatever your heart is choosing while you're sacrificing yourself to them. Okay, that'll make more sense here in a minute. Um, and then we know Cain kills Abel, and that's that. And then we have this huge injustice, and his blood is crying out, and God then starts speaking about the injustices of the world. But what does he do? He displays his goodness and his, his redemption, even though Cain thought that everybody was going to want to kill him now. And God said, no, I'm going to make sure that you live. And he still redeemed him, and which, again, is prophesying about what Jesus will do for us. Even though, God, even though man rejected Jesus and killed him, men still get <laughs> to live because of the very act. It's crazy. But it's incredible, and it is good and God is good for it. All right, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 8. So while you guys turn there, I want to explain a little bit more about these altars and sacrifices. So, again, sometimes we, tr- we like to think of altars or idols in our life as the, our things, all of our things, football, you know, our relationships, our career, And those are altars because they are the places that you sacrifice yourself for in order to appease whatever idol it is that you're worshiping. And then what happens is that place becomes sacred to you. Now, this is really what God was teaching me. I, I could go into how it all happened, and it was kind of an amazing story and the things that God spoke through. But I realized that there were parts of my life, that, that attachment that I had to the past, I had created this place that I thought was so sacred and holy, and it made me feel good about myself. You know, I sacrificed aspects of me on these altars, whether it was relationships or like these dreams I had, you know, dreams of careers that didn't work out and all of this stuff, disappointments in my life. You know, I had this idea that if I sacrifice myself for that to myself, then I will create this like perfect life that I get to live. And it'll become, and it became holy to me. And God started showing me that's why you have memories that are still attached to these things. You have feelings that are still attached to it because your altar had not been sanctified yet. By Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with pursuing a career or having relationships or watching football. I mean, I guess I won't talk about football today. (laughs) Sorry. Baseball. We'll talk about baseball, okay? I don't think anyone here cares too much about what's going on with baseball at the moment. Um, So, what was I saying? Now I'm totally lost because I started thinking about football. So, there's nothing wrong with them. And since we are to do all things to the glory of God, everything can become an altar to God. And you sacrifice yourself in the sense that when you're doing it for God, you are laying down your will and you are pursuing God's will through it. That becomes your sacrifice. And then what happens? 
You, you sacrifice your money, you sacrifice your time, you sacrifice your emotional energy and effort. Sometimes you sacrifice your relationships. You know, if you don't leave your mother and father, you know, you can't be my disciple. If you, you know, take all your money and give it to the poor, you can't be my disciple. There's all these things in our lives that God will require us to sacrifice. And whatever it is becomes worship to him. It brings us back to this place where we are just the representation of God and everything we do is glory to God. It's not just, you know, obviously coming in here and worshiping songs and all this stuff is great. But I would, I would say that we experience God's presence in here when we worship God because we have faith in that form of worship. But if you have the same faith in the form of worship in any other form of worship that you do with worship, then you would experience the same level of God's presence in that area of your life too. Should I say that again? <laughs> we come into this space because we have faith that we will experience God because we worship him. And that's great. And we should have faith for that. But God said to do all things to his glory. And God wants to occupy our entire life. He wants our entire life to be this sacred space, not just this building where we sing songs to him. But we have faith in the songs. We have faith in the, the whole experience. But if you had that same faith that every single thing you did, from your job to your relationships to where you spend your money, everything, if you had that same level of faith, you would experience the same level of anointing in God's presence in that area that you do here. In fact, I would, I would probably say you'd experience it more <laughs> just because of the way things are. So God wants to take these altars in your life. So let's say you have built, let's say when you were younger, you got a job and you were, you were made manager and now you're in charge of everyone and you tasted control. You tasted what it's like to be in control and have power. And it made you feel good. It made your soul feel good. It, it appeased some part of you, right? That an insecurity or whatever that was there, that if you were just walking in God's perfect identity, you wouldn't have thought anything of it. It wouldn't have like touched that special place in you, you know? But what happens is you taste a little bit of that control, and now what do you do? You're like, I want more of it, so I start sacrificing aspects of my life. Oh, I see what it's like to be in middle management, so I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to find a better job in middle management, and then I can be over people even more, and then I can, you know, climb the ladder, and then I can have all of this control, and then I can be the president, and then I can screw up our nation. Sorry. <laughs> Too real. Um, you understand you start sacrificing your life on the altar of control. Now, control is not wrong. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. <laughs> so there's an aspect of control. Like if God says, I want you to take control of a situation, how many of you know control then becomes holy? It becomes something good. It's an act of obedience, and it brings glory to God. So if God says, I want to sanctify your altar of control that you have in your life, you have been experiencing control, and every time you've done it, it's been appeasing the idol that you've been worshiping, 
and it's been creating this wonderful space, and God wants to sanctify it. Jesus wants you to look at these areas of your life, whatever it is. Maybe there's other things that are coming to your mind that are like, yeah, I've always, you know, I've always been convicted about this or whatever. God's saying it's not necessarily wrong. Paul said, you know, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. So any time where we're trying to like say that something is inherently evil, other than, you know, like obvious sins like, you know, murder, <laughs> cheating on your wife, you know, things like this, there's no way that you're going to be able to like make that okay. But even, you know, with sex, sex is okay. You have sex with the wrong person. How many of you know you just ruined that altar? <laughs> sex was supposed to be a form of worship to God. And it was supposed to be an act of obedience, be fruitful and multiply. So it was just right there in the beginning in the garden. That was an altar of worship to God. So going back to control, if you let Jesus, and this is what I want you to genuinely try to do, get alone with the Lord and let the Lord show you that he is pouring his blood on these altars. Now, in my case, I was confused because I was like, God, I feel like I've dealt with a lot of this idolatry in my life. Obviously, there's still other areas where I'm probably worshiping myself and not God. And, the, and I trust that the Lord is going to convict me and reveal that and sanctify me. And we're going to go from glory to glory. But in the case of like my dream where I'm like, I thought I broke this soul tie. I thought I've got my identity from you and I'm not getting it from other people anymore. Like, I thought we dealt with that. And the Lord was telling me, yes, you have dealt with that, but you haven't dealt with the altar. You haven't dealt with the place or, you know, the, the specific way that you were worshiping yourself. God has cleansed your mind to be like him, but you still have all these altars in your life that you have to, you have, to have sanctified. I, I hadn't intentionally taken those things, you know, this disappointment in my life or this, you know, I wanted to be a superstar or whatever. And I haven't taken that and said, you know what, Lord, there's nothing wrong with that. I want you to cleanse it so that from this moment on, I can make that area of my life glorifying to you instead of just being something that I'm tied to from the past because it's still unholy in me. Is this making any sense. Okay. All right. Is this good? Has anyone heard this before? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so even like ministry, and this was one thing where God had to show me this happened in your life. You, as you were coming out of certain, you know, areas in your life that were, you know, you were tore up from the floor up, and then you went to church and you started to get redeemed, right? But then even aspects of ministry and aspects of church can quickly switch to yourself. Like, I, feel, I now feel good about myself because I'm going to church or because all of these people, you know, think that I'm, you know, doing this. And it's still just appeasing the soul. All of ministry. You, have, you created these altars. You went back to church so that you could get rid of your sins and then the very place became a place where you started sinning again. And it shows that sin isn't just actions. 
this is this whole thing is sin. Whatever you are sacrificing yourself for, if it's not a sanctified altar, then it's sin. That's that was that is what God is trying to get us back to breaking off legalism in our life, where we're no longer eating from the knowledge of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are only eating from the tree of life. The Holy Spirit tells you, do this, don't do that. And then everything you do becomes an act of worship to God. And then we return to the earth. Remember the Bible says, um, the earth is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed, right? The entire earth is desperately wanting us to become God's idols again. They're desperately wanting us to look and feel and seem like God. And that's the only thing that's going to redeem the earth. And obviously Jesus will come back and he'll start making these things happen. But in the meantime, it's still our job to like clean up our act. You know what I'm saying? So we're going to finish here in a minute. I just want to read a couple more scriptures. 1 Corinthians 8. This scripture has been speaking to me for a while now because it it summed up something that I just had struggled with for a while when it came to legalism. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. All right, so food might be your sacrifice or your altar. We know that while we possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, while love builds up. Okay, so that's going back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, knowledge is not wrong, but the way you apply the knowledge is what's wrong, and that's what Satan caused Adam and Eve to do. He wanted them to gain knowledge of the law where they just decide for themselves, and that knowledge became wrong. But knowledge in and of itself isn't wrong, right? But it does puff up if it becomes your altar, But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. (laughs) I think that's just a funny verse. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. So he's talking about physical idols at this moment. So like, don't think of it in this kind of sense right now. An idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. He's saying, Christians, we get it. Don't worry about all of this food, you know, being sacrificed to people. You go into someone's house, you eat dinner with them, you find out, oh my goodness, you, you know, sacrificed this to that idol over there. I can't eat it. Oh. <laughs> God's saying, Paul's saying to them, we know that you know who God is. Don't worry about that kind of stuff. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, lowercase Elohim, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. 
Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, everybody say, since their conscience is weak. Oh, I'm about to set you free through the word. Because their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you and all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, this brother or sister with a weak conscience, for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fail. I'm glad nobody here thinks that eating meat is a sin so I can eat meat. Thank you. Um, So here's what happens. There's all kinds of stuff that I see Christians say, Oh, that's evil. Oh, this is evil. Oh, if you partake in that, you know, you're going to open up portals from hell and your whole home is going to be demonized and you're going to have all of this stuff. That is the result of a weak conscience. That's what Paul is saying. I'm not saying it. Paul is saying it. Okay. Let me give you a perfect example. I won't go into some of the things that I see because I'm going to let the Lord deal with some of that if that's something that you do. Um, you just ask the Lord, you know, am I making something sinful or evil? Let me put it this way. You ask the Lord, am I empowering something by believing that it has power over me? So you all know what dream catchers are, right? Those little things, it, you know, uh, Native Americans make them and they believe that if, you know, you hang it, in your house or your car, that it'll, you know, catch all of your bad dreams, right? I don't know why they have it in their car, (laughs) unless they're sleeping in their car all the time. But how many of you know that has no power? Unless you give it power. (laughs) If you agree with it, then it has power. But if I just by chance... I have, no, I have no exposure to that. I don't even know it exists. But one day I got creative and I started, you know, putting this twine together and I made this little pattern in a circle and I'm like, oh, here's some feathers. That'll look cool if I hang it from it. And I hang it from it and I put it up in my home and a Christian with a weak conscience comes into my house. They'll be like, Curtis, is, he's worshiping demons because he's got that thing hanging up in his house. It doesn't have power over Curtis because Curtis, his conscience is strong in that area. Does this make sense? Let me, let me give you another example. This is really good because it's specific for me and my wife. My wife cannot watch a scary movie, right? If she watches a scary movie, it will mess with her spiritually. Now, me, on the other hand, it doesn't bother me. You know, I work, 
I've worked in film before. You know, I, I see right through the, um, the what? Yeah, the effects. It, it's just, it's silly to me, actually. So there's been times where God is like, you know, said, I want you to watch that movie. I'm going to speak to you through it. And I'll be like, really, that one? And he's like, yeah, it's fine. But I would never make my wife watch it <laughs> because it would totally mess with her. She wouldn't be able to sleep. Now, this is my wife's own words, so I'm not like saying this for her. She has a weak conscience when it comes to scary things. And it would be sin for me if I told her to watch it or if I was like, well, God said we can watch it. You know, her conscience is weak in that area, and that's okay. That's not wrong. And if God tells her not to watch it, then that's the law that she should live by. Not, you know, well, you know, at, at what point does a movie become too scary that it becomes demonic? You know, the truth is, you can watch a stupid G-rated Disney cartoon, and it can be filled with, you know, more demonic stuff than something that's rated R. So, we live by the law of the Spirit, and that and the Spirit guides us in that. So, in this case, now, I'm not trying to insult anybody, okay? If, I'm, I'm telling you, when it says they have a weak conscience, that's not sin. You have areas in your life where you have a strong conscience, and I have a weak conscience. What, just a weak conscience? Okay, so that's a great question. I didn't know, I guess I haven't really, like, thought about how to explain it. <clears throat> so in this case... Paul talks about um, being free from the law and living in Christ Jesus, right? This was so controversial to especially Jews because they have just lived by the law all their lives, right? So their conscience has become like solidified and hardened, their hearts like become hardened to it, right? And so when Jesus came, they totally rejected him. And Paul is then accused of like telling everyone, yeah, you can just go do whatever you want. And so he like specifically says to people, I'm not telling you that you can do whatever you want. I'm not saying that you have permission to sin, but I'm saying you are completely free from the law. And that was something that was hard for them to overcome. The Lord, through his grace, you know, God apportions his grace to people in different measures. Paul got a huge measure of grace because he was someone that was killing Jews, or he was killing Christians as a Jew, and then the Lord completely set him free. So his conscience, and then he was the one that was getting the revelation about freedom. So he's starting to see that, oh my goodness, these things don't have power over us anymore. Like idols, like in this case, he's saying, you know, sacrificing food to idols and then eating the food. That was a very, very evil thing to do under the law. God said specifically not to do it. So their conscience became weak because of that. Does that make sense? Like Jews, sure, they didn't have a strong revelation in the freedom that they had. I 
I think of it as your conscience is actually your natural mind telling you what's right and wrong. That's your conscience. So if my conscience is weak in an area, my natural mind is telling me, don't do that, be afraid of that, that's wrong. Um, but if I have a strong conscience, I'm, able to over, I'm more able to overcome that natural mind feeling by revelation I receive from the Lord about it. Does that make sense? Does that help? Okay. What she said. Thank you, that's a really good question. I'm glad I need to figure out a better way of saying that. So just write that down and give it to me. Um, sorry if this is now going over. You can all blame Anna for it. I'm just joking. Yana, <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I said it wrong. Um, oh, I had another really good point that I was going to make. Okay, so uh, during Halloween, we see a lot of posts about Halloween. Half the Christians are saying, it's evil, it's vile, don't touch it. And then you have the other half of Christians saying, we're free. I'm not here to tell you what is wrong or right. You're supposed to be led by the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit says not to do something, don't do it. If the Holy Spirit says that something's okay, then do it. Unless, like, the Bible is specifically saying, don't do it, it's sin. Obviously, like, that is a foundational standard that we should live by. But if it's in the New Testament, if it's in the Old Testament, it's part of the old law, right? So I heard someone who came out of Satanism, and they said, you can't put a pumpkin on your porch because you'll open a demonic portal. And to him, that was very real. Because what Satan likes to do is defile everything. So in their practices, there's all kinds of things Satanists do. Um, and one, I guess, involves pumpkins, Right? It's just part of the whole ritual and everything. So then a Satanist comes out of that. How many of you know that person's conscience is weak because of it? They're, and in fact, here's how you know. They got into it in the first place. So a Satanist, it, this is just what's funny to me, is when a Satanist tries to tell me what is evil and what is not, or someone who's a former Satanist, and it's like, you went and worshipped the devil specifically, and now you're lecturing the rest of us on what is evil and what is not. I find that interesting and funny in a way. But my point is, to him, if he put a pumpkin on his porch, it would open up a demonic portal, because he believes it will open up a demonic portal. So his conscience is not as strong as my conscience where I can put a pumpkin on my porch and it's just a pumpkin. You know, I know that might be a silly example, but there's all kinds of stuff that people really do that sum up all of this. And so what Paul is actually saying, and this scripture, this is why it's so important, he's not addressing the people with the weak consciences. He's addressing the people with the strong conscience. And he says, you better not cause other people to sin because that sin will be real to them because they have faith in it. If you have faith in the freedom of, of Jesus, then you don't give power to the things that the enemy has tried to defile. Another thing would be yoga. You know how yoga is like, specific positions of worship to different gods. Every position is supposed to be like in Hindu or Buddhism, whatever it was birthed out of. Um, they are specific positions of worship to different deities. Well, what do we have in here? We have positions of worship. Of worship. 
How many times during a service does Randy tell you to raise your hands? <laughs> you know? So why does Satan get to determine what position is his and what position is not? So if I do, you know, a certain position, it's by default worship to a demon. But if I do a different position, then it's worship to God. You see how you, when you put it this way, it starts to be like, no, Satan doesn't get to Satan doesn't get to steal the joy I get from seeing pumpkins on my porch. <laughs> Satan doesn't get to determine what position my body is put in, is determined, you know, what I'm worshiping. This is what I'm talking about. The altar and the sacrifice, these are not evil. It's what these are going to. So if I'm putting a pumpkin on my porch because I think it's nice and I think it's pretty and I think pumpkins are a creation, are a beautiful creation of God and we're going to mush it up and we're going to make some nice pie out of it, then that's giving God glory. But if I think that the devil has power over my pumpkins, <laughs> then, the, then what does the devil have power over? My pumpkins. Because I now made him the object of authority in my life and not the spirit of Christ. So it's all about what Jesus says. So we as Christians, it's not just to say, well, it's okay for me to have a weak conscience. No, the, allow the Lord to cleanse your conscience. The, the word talks about that, that the spirit of God comes and cleanses our conscience, our carnal mind. Pastor Randy talked about it. He did a whole sermon on the carnal mind. I think that's perfect what Tara was saying. We have to be able to live above that by the Spirit and let the Spirit determine everything, okay? Any other questions? <laughs> so, when someone puts their faith in the law, they are judged according by their faith. The Bible says, judge lest ye be judged. Or, in other words, whatever you make judgments by, that's what God will judge you by. So if you think putting pumpkins on your porch is evil, then every time you put a pumpkin on the porch, I'm going to judge you for it. <laughs> Demons are only allowed to violate your conscience until you give them a foothold and then they violate everything. They're like computer viruses. You know, all they need is just one open door and now your whole computer's messed up. But they can only go through that conscience in, by make, getting you to make an agreement with them. So when people have a weak conscience, that's basically what that's saying is there's still a part of your mind that has a stronghold that is attached to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're still eating from that tree and you're not eating from life. But it's okay because Jesus' blood covers you, and if you allow the Holy Spirit to, he will cleanse your conscience. Um, oh, in regards to dream catchers, Psalms 4.8 says, In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. The book of Job talks about how when we lie down, it is God that gives us dreams and visions and nightmares in the night. So, in that case, the 
Stronghold is not whether you have the dream catcher. It's whether you believe that that dream catcher is going to protect you at night or not. That's what makes it evil. And then because of it, you open up your conscience to a demonic spirit. And then guess where your dreams are coming from now instead of God? <laughs> because you put faith in the dream catcher and you didn't put faith in Psalms 4.8 that says, I will lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. God is your dream catcher, not a dream catcher. All right, we're going to wrap up now. So everybody go ahead and stand, and I'm just going to read one more scripture to you. Dave, you can come up and soothe us while we meditate on the word. Now, I want you to take this as a prophetic word, this scripture, because this is another scripture that God led me to, and he was promising me that as he and I go through this, and as he reveals it, you know, you don't got to like go looking for things that aren't there. But ask God, are there still altars in my life, even from my past? Maybe you think about someone or you think about a time or a place, and you still like feel some type of way about it. Um, then that's how you know that's still an altar in your life. You might get dreams about it. You might dream about the past, dream about different elements. Take that and say, and specifically bring it before the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to sanctify this. I'm not going to tear it down because that was my first thought. Like, God, do you want me to like tear down all of these strongholds in my mind? And the Lord's like, no, there's nothing wrong with them. Just let me wash it in my blood. So Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 7 says, <clears throat> These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess. As long as you live in the land, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of, the, of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. Woo! So I want you to go home and meditate on that scripture. Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 7. Let it wash over you like this promise that God has for you. It's prophesying. It's a, a physical thing that was happening to the Israelites, but it was prophesying about what we would be able to do in Christ. All of the things before Christ where the world has, has taught you to worship yourself, all these altars 
that the world has taught you to build, you get to go back and you get to make them places of worship for God. You get to tear all of that stuff down in your heart. And it's a promise that God's going to do it with you and through you. Amen? So let me bless you with that. Lord, I thank you for this revelation. I ask for more. I ask that you would clean our conscience of the knowledge of good and evil. Would you scrub our minds completely clean of that? That every single thing we do would be according to what you are saying now. God, that you would be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, that you would guide us in every single thing we do. I bless, man, I bless everybody's minds, any areas where they have given power to something that they shouldn't have. God, I ask that you would break that power right now in the name of Jesus, that you would impart to them a gift of faith so that they can walk in the law of freedom and liberty in you, Jesus. We dedicate our lives to the law of liberty and the law of freedom. God, I ask that you would write your law on our hearts and nothing else, that we would not get our law and our conviction from a pastor or a preacher or a book or this or that, that it would only be by your spirit that the law is written on our hearts. Now, Lord, you can use all those things. You can use the word. You can use preaching and teaching. But would we only be convicted? Would you guard every part of our conscience so that we would only be convicted by you and you alone? And so I bless everybody with that. In the name of Jesus, amen.